0: This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday, 10 to 2, on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app.
1: It is a hot question. I mean, it's a challenge for uh, virtually a heck of a lot of communities around uh, British Columbia, other parts of the world, obviously, too. But we're talking about panhandling and especially... Uh, you know, some threatening style of panhandling at times. If you're waiting outside the bank and asking people for money when they've come out of an ATM, that's a challenge. City of Salmon Arm has been wrestling with this problem, and they've decided to go forward with a plan to fine $50 for people who panhandle on the city streets. You heard from Louise Wallace uh, Richmond, who's a Salmon Arm councillor, and saying, look, this is the last resort They're going to try other things, but they want to have this in their back pocket. The challenge is, is it going to be successful, which leads us to our hot question of the day. City of Salmon Arms decided to move forward with that $50 fine for people who panhandle on the streets. Do you think this will be effective? Yes. It will discourage it, or no, it's pointless. Well, you can let us know on the BuzzLine, too, at CKNW BuzzLine at 604-331-2899, 604-331-2899. Leave your vote there. Make a comment if you'd like. Also, you can join us at Twitter at CKNW, Twitter at CKNW. Log in on that one and weigh in on the vote. Is it going to be effective? Because it's certainly a challenge going forward. Uh, We've got a challenge like that in Victoria. We've got a challenge like that in Vancouver, uh, Surrey. There's a lot of municipalities wrestling with it. But, you know, is it easier said than done? First of all, what happens if, in fact, they don't pay the fine? Or is this just giving the city permission to remove them forcibly from that area? Well, the details have yet to be revealed themselves. But, and again, they said very clearly it's their last resort to levy that fine. But do you think that is going to be effective Let us know. Yes, it will discourage, or no, it's pointless. Join us on the BuzzLine, 604-331-2899. 604-331-2899, or join us on Twitter, Twitter at CKNW. I've been looking forward to talking about this. It's a monster subject and it's great when you can go to the, the source, the horse's mouth. Terry Glavin is a columnist. You know him from the National Post, Ottawa Citizen, uh, you know, a contributing editor to McLean's. But what I think of him as the guy who is uh, courageous enough and brave enough to bring us the stories about China way before it hit the regular sort of news cycle. He was warning us, hey, you better be careful who you're dealing with. And he joins me on the line right now. Terry, I mean, it seems like every week we've got more news. I mean, the latest, being uh you know uh, mccallum's sort of wades into it and says be be careful to the chinese government if you uh go against the liberals because you'll elect the conservatives you know uh, which is astounding and and you know christopher freeland certainly disavowed from that kind of an approach but it's part of a bigger deal here i mean uh, we've got influence of china in so many areas and i thought maybe you could start by just sort of outlining that for us
2: well, it's uh, the funny thing about this is that it's uh it's sort of um, in plain sight. This stuff has been going back years. Um, I wrote my first story about the Americans warning us away from Huawei uh because of uh, their hacking and and espionage, the fact that they're essentially they're in effect uh the sort of technological uh arm of the of the Beijing state and warning us about their sanctions busting in Iran. I wrote my first story about that nine years ago. And, you know, the writing's been on the wall ever since.
1: Well, and
2: um, it's been on the wall longer than that, actually. And you get people like uh, John Manley and John Kretchen and John McCallum and Wenran Jiang, and they're treated like, you know, think tankers and elder statesmen and uh, this is what happens. This is how we end up where we are.
1: Well, it looks like, I mean, obviously it's an organized effort by the Chinese government to infiltrate into Canada, to influence Canadian policy, etc. But it's so multifaceted. I mean, I'm thinking of, when you talk Huawei, and I think of all the money they've given to Canadian universities as an example. So, asking us to swear off that, you're going to get some blowback. Uh, We just had a big story here in British Columbia, where the municipalities, you know, the BC Union of Municipal Governments are all getting Together and they have a big reception that's sponsored by the Chinese. No other foreign governments involved and other areas that way. I, I look at a new report yeah. out of the National Security and Intelligence Committee, uh, uh, you know, parliamentarians that you've been reporting on, and boy, they're certainly right to the point, but again, a little Johnny come lately on it.
2: In, indeed. And the curious thing about this is, you know, if you look at what's happening in the United States and, you know, what's been preoccupying. American politics for the last uh, two or three years is the possibility of collusion between the Trump administration, or at least it, the Trump campaign, and the Kremlin uh, and Russian influence in uh, in, in Trump's house. Um, the curious thing about Canada is that the you know this is if I'll put it this way. Can you imagine if Trump had appointed the head of the Russian American Business Council to head his transition (laughs) after he was elected? This is what Justin Trudeau did. He took Peter Harder, the head of the Canada China Business Council and appointed him to lead his transition and help him figure out who all the cabinet ministers should be and so on. And then he appointed Peter Harder to the Senate and then Peter Harder became the leader of the government side in the Senate of Canada, the, you know, our parliament. <laughs> I mean, what the, you know, the Americans and the Russians, I mean, this is a serious bit of business that uh, the, Americans, uh, the American press has been paying attention to. But it, it's got nothing on what we've done in Canada. What's happened in Canada is it's become normalized. And it's become, you know, acceptable. Or you can sort of get away with it. Uh, when you have, for instance, John Manley, the de- deputy pre- uh, prime minister, saying that uh, quite openly, uh, and publicly that, uh, Canada should have just simply lost the extradition request for Meng Wanzhou in the mail, or that, uh, or that we should simply walk away from the extradition treaty that we have with the United States. Um, and then curiously, Urging the government to uh, uh, Trudeau to tell David Lametti to do, who's the our our justice minister, to do for Huawei what Jody Wilson-Raybould was fired for not doing for SNC-Lavalin, saying this publicly and openly. In fact, when he did last January, I guess he said he blamed Jody Wilson-Raybould for the mess we we were in with. uh, with Meng Wanzhou and the kidnapping of the two Michaels. So, uh, and then you've got uh, John Manley, oh, pardon me, John McCallum, who had already said that the Americans should simply, you know, Trump, the Trump administration, the best thing that could happen is that the Trump administration should somehow interfere in the U.S. Justice Department investigation and charges against Huawei and Meng Wanzhou, which, by the way, go back 12 years, that investigation. Um, and that actually would be similarly unprecedented. Kretchen has advised that we just tell David Lametti, pull the extradition. Forget it. Pull the extradition proceedings. That would be unprecedented, never done in Canadian history before. And they're asking or expecting or saying they would hope that Trump do exactly the same with the, the U.S. Justice Department, investigation and charges against Meng Wanzhou and Huawei, never done before. Totally unprecedented. So the rule of law, and I think i got to give Christopher Freeland credit for this. She gets it. You know, she came in late. Uh, you know, the first cabinet to the first foreign minister we had was that insipid and hapless uh, Stéphane Dion. Uh, and and she's basically saddled with this, and she's trying to work through this stuff, And she's been trying to keep all these disco generation retreads from the liberal old old guard to just shut their mouths. And now we've got John McCallum, uh, who had to be fired for this kind of behavior, is saying openly and without so much as a smirk on his face that the Chinese government should influence the outcome of the federal election in Canada by conducting its business in such a way as to avert the possibility of of a conservative government, because the conservatives might be a little bit more impudent and saucy than the uh, the liberal government has lately been obliged to be. So, I mean, now the conservatives are actually suggesting that CSIS investigate or look into uh, McCallum and uh, determine whether or not this is, a, a, a you know, an invitation to a foreign power to influence the outcome of, of, of an election in Canada. Uh, you know, this isn't just some flunky who works for, you know, Bombardier or something like that. This is John McCallum, and it has been in plain sight. He took $73,000 in free trips to China before he was appointed ambassador. He was a cabinet minister, and he considered it a promotion to be appointed ambassador to Canada. And ever since then, everything he had said, for instance, just one little example. Uh, About 18 months ago, I guess it was, he announced that we were uh, opening or tripling the number of visa offices uh, in China and that this was a really great idea, Canadian idea. We're open to the world. We're Canadians. Three months earlier... The Chinese foreign minister, Wang Yi, had said Canada should triple its visa offices in Canada. Mm-hmm. So, whatever the Chinese want, we dress it up as a Canadian idea, and we're so much better than the Americans, and we're so much more clever than the Americans. And, uh, you know, this is, this is the way it's been, and it's been happening in plain sight. And very few people have had uh, the sauce to say, you know, there's something unseemly about all of this.
1: Well, I'm, I'm I, by the way, I'm talking with Terry Glavin, columnist, National Post, Ottawa Citizen, contributing editor in Maclean's, is the person, in my opinion, who has blowing the whistle on the China story for years. It's now far more prominent in the last year or so. Uh, but he has been on this for years. At first, I thought this was a naivety. Like, isn't the world, you know, let's all hold hands and sing Kumbaya and the world's a happy place. Right. Much more recently, I've been coming to, you know, there's just so much money coming out of China. They know what our price is and it's called money. I do a show called Money Talks and I thought, are they trying to just verify that title all the time? Because, uh, you know, and Canadians yeah. are finally waking up and we've got Canadians on death row and we seem to have completely forgotten about them. We know about Canada's canola exporters getting stuck, you know, nearly $3 billion there. I mean, there's just all sorts of, you know, now we have our intelligence agency saying this is a major threat. You know, finally, Canadians seem to be waking up, but uh, my, the motivation for how they behaved on the political side, I've become much more cynical about it now. There's just so much money involved that uh, it's hard for me to ignore that.
2: Well, I agree with you in fact uh, about, you know, when in the in the uh, halfway through the last term of the Harper uh, government, uh, the amount of money sloshing around the oil patch, you know, when CNOC, uh the Chinese National Offshore Oil Corporation bought Nexen uh in Alberta, that was the largest overseas acquisition in the history of the Communist Party of China. It was massive and uh you know, a lot of people in the conservative cabinet were Very worried about this and a lot of people in the cabinet were saying well what what can we do CNOC is you know offering Nexen shareholders twice the value of their shares Uh, you know the money is just uh, astonishing and and it's been sloshing around uh, primarily in liberal political circles for about a quarter of a century now and uh, it really has become normalized and I think that the funny thing about corruption is that unlike any other political vice it sort of uh, its ubiquity uh is uh works in in inverse proportion to our capacity to talk about it and mm. address it and root it out and that's w- that's the story of china
1: You know, I'm wondering if, uh, you know, we had the Chinese Ministry of State Securities kidnapping a former diplomat, it was Michael uh, Kovrig, if you know the name, Uh, entrepreneur Michael Spavor, Uh, you know, sitting Canadians, uh, no due process, they're being denied access to our embassy, the list just keeps going on. Finally, Canadians have got, or at least some Canadians are paying attention to it. Terry Glavin's been paying attention to it for years. Very pleased to have him with us, columnist in the National Post, a contributing editor in McLean's Ottawa Citizen. Terry, uh, one of the things we talked about just a moment ago was the incredible extent of Chinese influence in Canada. Whether you're buying a company in the oil patch, whether you're supporting you know, uh, over a half dozen Canadian re- uh, universities and research, etc. Uh, with Huawei. The list just keeps going on. I mean, right through, and I mentioned this earlier, right through sponsoring something like the Union of BC Municipalities Convention, yeah. the only foreign government. It just gives us a, t- a sense of how broad their influence is.
2: Yeah, I'm happy to see uh, uh, the mayor of, uh, I guess, Port Coquitlam, Brad West.
1: Brad West, yeah, uh, absolutely.
2: And other mayors are starting to say, you know, why the hell? How is it possible that we're actually doing this, and we think it's kind of cool? You know, it, There, there is this weird thing that started to happen, and it actually goes back to, uh, to those Sr., you know, he... Uh, he, he wrote a book about his travels in China during the time of the Great Famine, and he ate well, and he didn't seem to notice anybody going hungry. <laughs> uh, and, and, and Canada was, of course, you know, sort of one of the first countries to, uh, to open diplomatic relations with China in the 70s. Um, and you had, uh, you know, Khrushchev um, uh, was the first country in the G7. Uh, to uh, sort of normalize China after Tiananmen, where they'd been, the, the regime had been kind of isolated. And he began the first of his several Team Canada trips to China. Um, and you have, you know, it goes right up to McCallum about a year or so ago, who said, you know, Canada shares a lot more in some respects with China than we do with the United States. Oh, wow. there has been this kind of avant-garde, radical chic idea that you know we're cool you know we deal with the chinese we're not like those those warmongering americans and you know this has been kind of you know the way they've been getting away with this 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 narrative line so to speak and it's a propaganda line and it's worked extremely well and in in recent weeks and months the you know that huge section of the foreign policy establishment and, uh, you know, the desperately compromised uh, sort of think tankery and uh, and university departments in Canada have been working overtime to kind of shore up their reputations. Because when you look at the counsel we've been getting from these guys for the past quarter of a the century, they haven't been right about China once. You know, this idea that if they just hung around with these hip and cool and with it Canadians, you know, they've become more like us. Well, actually, we've become more like them. Money corrupts. You know, when you're looking at billions and billions of dollars, when you look at the amount of effort and money that Huawei has been spending in Canada, we subsidized them, by the way, Mm -hmm. just to open shop here when the Americans were turning them away. We had Martin Cochon, that former federal Liberal cabinet minister, who, of course, is now on the Canada-China Business Council board, uh, said quite openly, if you can't beat them, join them. You know, is it any wonder that China is behaving towards us the way they're behaving now? What would make them think that Trudeau could just simply pick up a phone, call a judge, and Meng Wangzhou would be at Vancouver International Airport flying back to Shenzhen tomorrow? That's what John Chrétien has been telling them we can do. It's what John Manley says we should do. It's what John McCallum says he would like us to do they have come to see the liberal party of canada not unreasonably over years of lucrative acquaintance as the political wing of the canada china business council so they're behaving this way and so you got freeland who's trying to do her best and uh you know she's got all these guys from the old guard telling her that that basically she should capitulate totally alienate americans on both sides of the aisle by the way this isn't a Trump thing. This is not a foreign policy analysis.
3: Well,
1: I think that, if
2: you think Donald Trump, you know, talks trash about China, you should listen to Nancy Pelosi sometime.
1: As I say, I, I really like how you describe this, a very depressing style. If you want to file, rather, if you want to be uh, discon- uh, it's disconcerting how our politicians have been influenced themselves. And if you want to follow up on this, you want to read more, find Terry Glavin, find him in the Macleans. find him in the National Post of the Ottawa Citizen. Terry, thanks so much for finding time for us today.
4: Thank you, Michael.
1: And please keep up the good work. I'll take a break. I'll come oh, you're back. You're very more. kind. Thank you. Well, one of the hot stories of the night was the earthquake that uh, was 4.6, struck outside of Seattle early morning, but some people felt it right through here in Metro Vancouver. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I was down in Los Angeles in the aftermath of the San Francisco earthquake. I can't remember it's a couple of decades ago, but it was the big one down there. And they had an earthquake. And it was fascinating to see the response of all the people, you know, interviewed and all that stuff and people we came out and talked to around the condo. And it was always the fear that it was the big one coming next, that it's not, if they knew that the level of damage was, you know, to this factor then fine, it would have been a lot calmer. But once it starts, they start worrying, oh my gosh, is this the big one? And that's certainly a concern. We talk a lot about earthquake preparedness, you know, whether it's having fresh water or an earthquake kit, that kind of thing. But where are we at in terms of being able to predict, uh, able to help us prepare in that way for an earthquake? Well, what's so interesting is that a lot of, uh, we've got a story right here, about a technology being developed at Simon Fraser University to give us at least a heads-up if an earthquake is imminent. And there's a lot of positive factors that could come out of that. For example, if you had warning, you could stop people from driving across a bridge right at that moment. You could turn off gas lines, for example, because a lot of the damage, of course, is the aftermath of this. So I'm very pleased to have with me Professor Barad Barini. He's from the School of Metatronic Systems Engineering at Simon Fraser, used to, uh, Simon Fraser University. Professor Barini, thanks so much for taking time with us.
5: Uh, good morning, and thanks for having me.
1: And as you, as you can appreciate, we hear a lot of talk about earthquake, and it just seems like we've had several recently. Not just, uh, you know, we had the Seattle one, then what, a few hours later we had one down in L.A., but it seems it's more than that. And people are worried, and, and I thought, this is an interesting angle, though. Is, is technology getting any further ahead and enabling us to at least have some sort of warning that one's coming?
5: Well, actually, the knowledge and technology has been around for a long time. The issue is that it is not cheap enough to be deployed at a larger scale. But uh, right now, even in B.C., we have a very good network of uh, um, earthquake production uh, or, or detection early warning systems for earthquakes that are distributed around, uh, around the province. The challenge, oh, these are all going to work just fine. And we have had, uh, you know, basically the proper notifications from the system regarding the earthquakes in the past. And the challenge here is that these are attached to major pieces of infrastructure, so a major bridge or a major tunnel. So, for example, Massey Tunnel has one of those systems installed, but a lot of the general public uh, is essentially unprotected, and that can go, for example, for the you know residential households, schools, and all all see, uh, other places like that. Part of the reason is that the technology is very expensive. You know, the sensors that they use to detect these earthquakes, these primary waves that come from the earthquakes, um, is anywhere between 10000 to $50,000 per piece, per installation, which makes it unaffordable. And uh, for that reason, you know, we don't have a distributed network of sensors for smaller, infras- smaller pieces of infrastructure. And one of the, uh, as you just mentioned earlier in your uh, introductory talk, one of the challenges is aftermath, what happens after the earthquake. And there are actually studies right now that show that if you have such sensors in buildings, you can actually determine if the building is safe to re-enter after the earthquake. Because that's also a big problem. Once an earthquake hits a region, you don't know if the different uh, buildings are safe to enter. And. Having those sensors, such a distributed network of sensors can uh, be of great help in that uh, aspect as well. You know, besides all the benefits that you can get before the earthquake hits, you also have benefits when it actually happens
1: uh you know i by the way thank you we made a, such a terrific point about the cost of these things because if we can get the cost down then obviously the deployment can be much more broad uh how are we doing on that end or of some not necessarily the exact models of what we're talking about that we have that are expensive in major infrastructure projects but you know maybe a smaller version or just something as you say that can detect uh for a lot of reasons whether it's you should personally turn off your gas line as an example
5: um okay so um what uh, these sensors mostly do is that they detect vibrations and a sensor that detects vibrations and everybody else nowadays has one in their cell phone is an accelerometer. The issue with accelerometers is that they are normally not sensitive enough to pick up uh, the primary waves that are uh, generated by these earthquakes at the onset. These primary waves are, you know, you can think of them as the sound of the earthquake. And some animals, like horses and dogs and some birds, can actually hear that, and and they react to that sound. Unfortunately, humans cannot. But these sensors, if they are sensitive enough, can pick it up. Uh, The cost of these sensors, as I mentioned, is large. These, These devices are relatively large. You know, they're made using the old technologies. But there are new developments, in, including the work in our lab, that we want to miniaturize these sensors, fabricate many of them at the same time, and hopefully bring the cost down. Uh, there has been other efforts. You know, There is a lot of effort on earthquake detection around the world, for example, in Taiwan, in Japan, in the U.S., in a lot of places, people are trying to figure out if they can put a network of these cheaper sensors together and gather the information. For example, in California, there's actually... A, a pilot study that has been going on for a long time that um, they want to use if they can use the uh, sensors in cell phones to actually make a prediction. But because these sensors are not meant for this purpose, they are not sensitive enough, they are too noisy, there has to be a lot of signal processing. And by the time you do the signal processing, you it may be too late.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: But uh, the goal that we have in our lab is that hopefully we can develop sensors that are sensitive enough that they can pick up these uh, basically warning signals and uh, they are connected to the primary sources of concern like for example they are connected to the gas distribution system For and it doesn't have to be every building it could be a building block that they can actually shut off the gas connection to the entire block or the electricity to the entire block. I was talking to city managers in Metro Vancouver and actually one of the concerns they have is that after an earthquake, the city can be flooded because the water pipes can break, mm-hmm. so if you can actually shut off the water lines, that would be great. Uh, another concern they had was that you know in fire stations the bay the door to the base where you, the fire trucks are cannot can jam if an earthquake happens, so they want those doors to open automatically so that the fire truck can get out um, but in the end, yeah, so the sensor we are hoping that we can make it sensitive enough and cheap enough that you can install one, ideally per building, because as I mentioned, it can help you with the assessment of the building uh, after the earthquake. But one per block or for, let's say, a, a school buildings, things like that hopefully we can make it affordable enough in the next few years by developing this new family of sensors.
1: Now, can you even ballpark, uh, Do you you know, sort of target maybe five years from now we'll wake up and we'll be able to do this or is that just not possible at this moment? Uh,
5: So I think the biggest uh, challenge that we have right now is uh, finding somebody that is willing to manufacture this at a large scale, right? So, this is something that requires a little bit of public encouragement you know from the the governments the private industries are they do not see a big market as if as of now if if people are not going to use mm. t- tens or hundreds or thousands of these devices it's not really going to be commercially feasible it's not a good product so it needs a little bit of encouragement and uh, maybe even legislation at the government level to uh, make the private entities go and look for solutions and start investing in these solutions. But there are technically viable solutions that hopefully can lead into low-cost uh, early warning systems for earthquake. Uh,
1: one more question, if you've got time, and it's, this is, might, might qualify me for a job with the National Enquirer, but, you know, is a big, you know, California, as I said, I've been down there personally, experienced it, but had peoples are worried about the big one. Is that inevitable?
5: Um, Well, you can't... Okay, so there's always vibrations and shaking and uh, earthquakes, right? So you cannot really be too sure about when the next one is going to happen and how big it is going to be. Mm -hmm. People just look at the history of the event and look at the activity of the fault lines and they try to make predictions, but these are all probabilistic, right? So you assign a probability to something happening. And for the next big one in Metro Vancouver area... I have seen predictions anywhere between 10 to 40 percent that uh, an earthquake of magnitude 8 will hit this region in the next 30 years. So if you want to be a pessimist, you can say that it is almost a 50-50 chance in the next uh, 30 years. But again, you know, you can also look at the lower end of that spectrum. But the recent studies are actually putting that risk at a bit higher. So it's close to 37 percent, I think, right now, one of the more recent studies. That's fascinating Eventually stuff. it will happen. The issue is that, yeah, it, it will happen, but, you know, when it happens and how big it is, we can't know. We can only prepare for hopefully the worst case.
1: Great stuff. Uh, I really appreciate you finding time. I'm talking with Associate Professor with the School of Mechatronic Systems Engineering at Simon Fraser, uh, Barad Barini. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. This is an incredible story. Nikki Reitmeyer's uh, brought it to our attention. It's the odd... and and tragic story in the end of Frank Mesa. And I'm thinking about this. This is a guy, he's a 70-year-old runner in California, finished this year's Los Angeles Marathon with a time of 2 hours, 53 minutes. Can I repeat that? He's 70 years old, and he does under a 3-hour marathon. And I was sort of comparing that to some of my activity. I think I could get around the block in about that time. I mean, this is, you know, 2 hours, 53 minutes? Are you kidding? It's a new world record at the time. However... He did not keep that world record for long. Two months later, he was disqualified for cheating. And that's where this story begins. Let's hear what Nikki's got to say. It's, it's as I say, odd and tragic story about a man named Frank.
0: Frank Meza was 70 years old when he ran in the Los Angeles Marathon earlier this spring. He ran so fast that he not only won the marathon, but also set a new record for his age group. Keep in mind, a marathon is 42 kilometers long. His time was two hours and 53 minutes. The average length of time that it takes to run a marathon is four hours and 22 minutes. And Frank was 70 years old. You're probably starting to wonder if Frank's incredible race sounds a bit too good to be true. Turns out, it was. Frank Meza was disqualified for cheating. The Los Angeles Marathon, one of the largest races in the USA. This year, more than 20,000 runners participated. Now one of those runners who made a huge impression during the race is accused of cheating. The news broke on June 28th, when the LA Marathon posted a disqualification notice that stated, After an extensive review of original video evidence from official race cameras and security cameras at retail locations along the race course, Conquer Endurance Group has determined that Dr. Frank Meza violated a number of race rules during the 2019 Skechers Performance Los Angeles Marathon, including re-entering the course from a position other than where he left it. The video evidence is confirmed by a credible eyewitness report and our calculation that Dr. Mez's actual running time for at least one 5K course segment would have had to have been faster than the current 70-74 to age group 5K world record. Bracket, an impossible feat during a marathon. End bracket. the next fastest runner in Frank's age group was a guy named Dan. Dan's time was one hour and 20 minutes slower than what Frank posted. So Frank Meza was disqualified for cheating. But that's not where this story ends.
6: A 70-year-old long-distance runner who made headlines this week for alleged cheating in the L.A. Marathon was found dead this morning in the L.A. River. Dr. Frank Meza was disqualified from the marathon after setting a record time for his age group under three hours. One marathon investigator saying this week there is video showing him leave the course. Meza has said he was looking for a bathroom and did not take a shortcut. His cause of death now under investigation.
0: In a bizarre and tragic twist, Frank Meza's body was found in the Los Angeles River on July 4th. Seven days after he'd been disqualified, Frank was dead. See, when news broke that he'd been accused of cheating in the LA Marathon, people started to dig into his past. They started looking at other marathons he'd participated in, examining his times, exploring evidence, trying to determine... Had he cheated before? And what they found was pretty ugly. Turns out Frank had been disqualified from the California International Marathon in 2014 after missing several timing mats along the course. Same thing happened at the same race in 2016. But this time, he was disqualified and banned. When he ran the LA Marathon in 2015, he finished with an incredible time of two hours and 52 minutes. Now, officials didn't have any solid proof that he'd cheated, although the time seemed nearly impossible to achieve. They said that next year, Frank would have to run alongside an official observer who would watch him every step of the race. But next year, Frank decided, not to take part. Then there was the 2014 San Francisco Marathon. A picture surfaced that looked just like Frank during the race, riding a bike along the course. Derek Murphy is an online blogger who investigates marathon cheaters. What else did he dig up against Frank? Well, he found that at the Phoenix Marathon earlier this year, there was a video camera set up at mile 22. In Derek's words, Frank never appears on the video. He never passed the camera. He never ran that section of the course. Was Frank a serial marathon cheater? Prior to his death, and in the days after his disqualification, so many people in the online realm became fascinated with Frank's story. People like Derek Murphy.
4: It's you know, kind of a hobby where other people might binge-watch their favorite show or you know hop on the computer and browse and play video games. I'm looking at marathon results.
0: Derek spoke on CKNW in Vancouver with radio show host Simi Sarah. His blog is MarathonInvestigation.com, dot com, and he joins us now. Derek, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. How did you get started doing this?
4: Just looking on online at running forums, and I came across you know some examples of people cheating, and it was just fascinating to me. You know, who would do that? Why would you do it? That kind of thing. So, on um, my own, I just pulled up a race result, and I found somebody that. You know, had cheated in a pretty fast time in a race. It took me about two minutes to find this. So that's when I realized, hey, maybe this is a little more common than what you would typically think. So I just kind of dug in and it kind of blew up from there.
0: Why do people do it? I mean, they're not doing it for the money, right? There's usually not money involved in these races.
4: Not directly. You have some cases where maybe like a running coach or a blogger or someone who does profit that way from cheating. Um, a lot of times it's to qualify for the Boston Marathon, the Boston Marathon has strict standards on who can run it. You have to be able to run a certain time. So I see a lot of that. Then a lot of times it's just for you know I think social media plays a big role in it. it you know it's to post, hey, I ran this fast time, I completed this marathon, I I qualified for Boston, I you know whatever. So I just see a lot of that where there was really no benefit, but you see people who some people don't even run a single mile posting that they've finished races and, you know, posting times that aren't as fast as they really run. So I think, yeah, social media plays a big role.
0: But what motivated Frank? Well, we don't know, because he maintained through the whole investigation that he was innocent. Derek wrote in one of his many online articles about Frank that, quote, As long as Frank continues to claim that he has been unjustly disqualified and that he has never cut a course or rode a bike along a course, I feel it is necessary to present all the evidence that is available." And Derek seemed to find a lot of evidence. Photos of Frank seemingly off course or riding a bike during a marathon. Then there was the missed timing mats, a clue that Derek said is common in his investigations.
4: Most any race course, they'll have timing mats on the course. Within your bib is a chip that registers you as you cross one of these timing mats. So you can look at you know, their paces for the first 10 kilometers and all the way to the finish. So you look for odd things like somebody running the second half of a race faster than they ran the first half. And then you know you see that, then you'll dig in, okay, look at photos. Are there any photos of them on the second half of the race? And and that that kind of thing. So um typically I'll look at paces or miss timing mats. In this case the runner did actually miss a, a timing mat. Before I write an article, especially one that I think may get the attention that the runner, I make every effort to reach out and you know talk to the runner. You know tell him, hey, here's what I have. Do you fully admit this? And sometimes the data is so overwhelming, you, you think they would. Even then, sometimes they just kind of shut down, and you don't you don't hear from them.
0: Frank never confessed to cheating. In fact, he insisted he was innocent. But the evidence was mounted against him. Frank was disqualified from the L.A. Marathon on June twenty eighth. On July 4th, his body was found in the river. It appears we have one deceased up at the bottom of the riverbed. What happened to Frank Meza? The coroner's office
6: confirms a runner disqualified from the L.A. Marathon committed suicide.
0: The body of 70-year-old Frank Mesa was found in the LA River on Thursday. He denied allegations that he cheated during some of his long-distance runs, but the questions may have been too much.
6: During his final days, retired family physician Dr. Frank Mesa faced public humiliation following reports that cameras along the Los Angeles Marathon route
0: captured him re-entering the course from a position other than where he left it. He
6: was also spotted coming from a sidewalk and re-entering the race last March. said he was looking for a restroom and did not take a shortcut today his grieving wife tina was quoted as saying they were all manufactured lies and he
0: couldn't figure out why people were willing to listen to this we don't understand why he was attacked it hurt him deeply i still don't understand it do you think these allegations killed your husband
1: yes i do believe that i do believe that
0: The day after Frank's suicide, Derek Murphy, the online marathon investigator, released a written statement. He wrote, I am deeply saddened to learn of Frank Meza's death. My heart goes out to his family and friends, and I wish for everyone to be respectful and to keep his loved ones in mind. There will be a time for comment and a broader discussion. But at this point, I feel we should all allow those close to Frank the space to grieve.
1: He's a remarkable man. He's an honest man. He's an honestly hardworking man who loved to run.
0: This feature was produced, edited, and narrated by me, Nikki Reitmeyer, with audio from CBS, ABC, and Inside Edition, as well as quotes and content from MarathonInvestigation.com. Frank's story is the cautionary tale of a runner disqualified from a marathon for cheating. But when the internet learned of his misdeeds, the cyberbullying began, allegedly pushing Frank to take his own life. Did the vigilante punishment dealt out by strangers on the web outweigh the crime itself? For 980 CKNW, I'm Nikki Wrightmeyer.
1: What an interesting story, the age of outrage, the age of indignation at somebody else's behavior. I'm just hoping that uh, those people who are quick to rush to judgment, not that I certainly support anybody cheating, but let's make sure that we're applying the same principles to ourselves. That one's a bigger challenge, too. A uh, great story by Nikki. My thanks to her. Yesterday, we talked about ride hailing and one of the big obstacles uh, that proponents of ride hailing are putting forward is that the BC government's going to say you need a class four driver's license. And, you know, great discussion. You know what? It misses one of the biggest points that you just heard Robert Levy talk about on the news. People seem to be unaware of how far along we are to self-driving autonomous vehicles. Uber is a big player in this market. I mean, there's just so many examples. In Phoenix, Lyft and Google's Whammo have 10 self-driving vans available for passengers right now. California has just allowed Uber to have uh, self-driving taxis in their pilot project. Lyft has partnered with Aptiv, uh, has already done 50,000 rides in autonomous vehicles in Las Vegas. Uh, what Volvo has agreed to deliver 24,000 self-driving cars to Uber next year. Newtonomy has been self, uh, testing self-driving cars and buses in Singapore for two years. This is coming, and obviously we're not prepared. We're going to be debating the Class 5, Class 4 driver's license issue long since the need for drivers. That's the change that we have to be aware of. That's why I'm very pleased to have with me Chris Sainsbury. He's the Western Lead for the Mobility 2030 Initiative at KPMG Canada. He's a national leader for their Smart Cities Project. And he joins me on the line right now. First of all, Chris, I do appreciate you taking time. And as I say, I feel that people aren't nearly aware uh, or aware enough of how fast the self-driving revolution is hitting us. And, uh, I mean, I'm looking at, uh, you, you of course are dealing with this, uh, you know, in a very deep manner, but I'm looking at Phoenix, Arizona as an example where that conversion seems like it's already started to move to autonomous taxis.
3: Yeah thanks Michael for having me on here today. Um as you say you know technology is advancing so fast the autonomous vehicle vehicle landscape is completely being you know revolutionized over the past couple of years. And actually what we're seeing is technology is advancing at such a fast pace but what we, what we going to struggle to get pace is things like policy and regulation insurance and things. So what we're seeing in, in Phoenix and other parts of the U.S. is really great. You know, they're, they're using this as a test bed to get vehicles out on the road, um, test them out. But at the moment, we've still got, you know, those drivers as, as a safety measure. So I think taking that next leap will be will be big. But what we want to make sure is, you know, here in Canada, particularly back in B.C., that, you know, we're keeping pace with this and um, really keeping up with the technology of so that we can take advantage that all these things have to offer us.
1: You know, it's interesting, anytime we have such a revolutionary, transformative technology, there's always pros and cons, or people willing to pros and cons. One of the things that jumps out at me right away, if we're talking about British Columbia, is if we all appreciate we've got a problem with insurance, or our own car insurance and the monopoly there. Well, if we do have a, the penetration of self-driving vehicles, I mean, the number of accidents will go down uh, dramatically and could result in huge insurance savings. Uh, I've talked to some U.S. big insurance firms about that, and they're, they're getting ready for it.
3: Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, I've talked to a number of, you know, insurance agencies in BC itself, and they're looking to they're going to have to diversify their services. Things are going to change. Accidents, you know, they're going to reduce. Um, and I think they need to move into new markets. But what you might see actually is with the arrival of autonomous vehicles in the future, that maybe people will not actually own vehicles maybe people will sort of lease these vehicles and insurance comes as part of that package. Um, and I can see this changing because as we get it to more autonomous, there's so many different components that sort of make up the vehicles themselves. That is no longer just a mechanical thing. Um, so I think what we'll see, is you know, big almost fleets of um, vehicles being leased out to different parts of, you know, different people to be able to use. I can, I can see very different models happening in the future. So just like you're seeing, you know, new business models with the whole ride sharing, ride hailing um thing that came out, you know, a couple of years ago, I think we're going to see, you know, very different changes in, in car ownership coming to the future.
1: And obviously, I mean, we're seeing major car companies, virtually every major car company, whether it's Apple or Tesla has been doing this, Mercedes-Benz. Uh, we just talked about Ford and Volkswagen on the news. You know, the list is just a huge one. So obviously, uh, you know, if we want sort of a vote of confidence that this Transformative technology is going to be with us. The debate is when, but the, whether it'll be with us uh, seems uh, an overwhelming yes when you talk to people in the industry.
3: Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, is, autonomous vehicles is a matter. Of, you know, if it's going to happen, it's more a matter of when it's going to happen. Um, And interestingly, actually, KPMG put out a, a survey, well, this year and last year, called the autonomous vehicles readiness index. And what this was about was really benchmarking different countries around the world in terms of how prepared they were for autonomous vehicles to be on their roads. So it, wasn't, it was looking at, you know, there was technology side, you know, there was policy and regulation side, but it was also looking, you know, um, from a customer acceptance perspective. Mm-hmm. And that's something we don't always think about because at the end of the day, some people actually like to drive. Um, so not everybody's going to be converted, I think. So I think we're going to see a bit of a mix mash going into the future, but it'll be an interesting landscape to watch out
1: for well the other thing i should have mentioned is that um, in ontario you know which is of course home to the huge portion of our population i know that kpmg has done the work on this you know but they've also allowed it i think it was january this year didn't they allow that you know the testing of driverless vehicles there uh so you know as i say it's my i guess my point is to let people know this is maybe coming faster than you know
3: Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is definitely happening. Um, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't dare to put a, you know, a time frame on this, but it's going to happen in the next couple of years. Um, and what I would say is, you know, we need to, to shape up all the changes it brings. Because I mean, in a world of autonomous vehicles, it could potentially shake up, you know, the whole of future mobility—how people, you know, live, work, and play, how we get around, how we commute to work. It could mean an impact, you know, on, on the bus system. It could mean an impact on the train system. It's really part of a, a wider ecosystem right across, you know, cities and how cities and transportation, are kind of going to be more integrated going into the future.
1: I remember reading a study by MIT going back a few years, and they said if they, they had a system of autonomous buses, it would be the equivalent of building four Holland tunnels, because the efficiency uh, quotient goes up. You know, it's, it's not the same as I tailgate somebody, if you know what I mean, you know, because mm-hmm. of all the sensors involved. I, I mean, it's just, I think it's just a fascinating aspect uh, there, as you just alluded to. It, well, think about the change if you're, chain, if you're going in an autonomous vehicle, it's sort of like you're in, uh, you know, a mobile office in a way. And I think that's going to change the commute because it won't be downtime as we report the traffic, you know, coming in, you know, in a one-hour commute, it won't be downtime. You'll be able to actually work uh, truly make your car an office. So it's things like that that I think are amazing and profound.
3: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, you know, actually, I think, I think studies from the U.S. showed that you know the amount of time wasted actually, you know, driving cars. If we could turn that around and use it to be more efficient and more productive, whether it's being, you know, working in, you know, a car that's self-driven on the way to work, or even, you know, you know, relaxing. Um, there's going to be, you know, more recreational things that you can, or even buying your shopping while you're commuting to and fro from work. So turning that productive time will have a massive boost on the economy.
1: Yeah, I remember at University of Texas, I was reading a study, they thought it would save something like 2.7 billion unproductive hours in work commutes in a year in the US, of course much bigger than Canada, but I think they put the number at like $447 billion per year in annual savings. So, I mean, there's just so many positives that come out. Uh, The other one that's so interesting that you've brought, uh, Chris, is that, you know, a lot of people are going to be hesitant to do this. They're not going to trust the technology, uh, you know, despite the fact that we have other, you know, things that we've had to adapt to, but I sort of see it, uh, you know, as delivery may be the first place we do it, that we actually have, you know, we don't mind if our pizza gets delivered to us, for example, in an autonomous vehicle.
3: Exactly. You've you, you hit the nail on the head. I think, you know, that acceptance is something that's it's more of like a cultural shift that we're mm-hmm. going to have to slowly change um, uh, people's perceptions. But, I mean, what, what I do see that's happening um, is actually probably more trials and actually, you know, roll out in maybe some of the more rural communities. So maybe not, you know, downtown Vancouver or Victoria, uh, but, you know, smaller communities where it's less dense, there's less traffic, you know, kind of to test that. But what I think once it's proven, you know, everyone's going to want a part of it. They're going to see all the societal benefits, the economic benefits that come with it. Um that, you know, there'll be a desire for, to, to have this in all major cities.
1: Well, you should see me try and back up. I have been, I was dying for that backup camera in my car. We're talking at option of... Uh self-driving vehicles and the impact it'll have on transportation but specifically big debate about ride sharing well i can tell you uber has put a lot of money into this uh, lyft has an agreement with gm both talking about autonomous vehicles being tested right now in many places uber did in pittsburgh uh, newtonomy in singapore uh, phoenix has got them uh, we've just talked about that they're okay to test in California right now, I mean the list is a long one. I'll just give you one more thing, and I'm going to go a couple of calls in the line here. But we now have one accident, something like every hundred thousand uh, dollars, thousand kilometers of driving. Autonomous vehicles will drop that to one accident every 10 million kilometers of driving. It's going to save lives, but save money, all sorts of things. It's another part of the motivation. If you think it's not going to happen, I think you're wrong on that one. Chris Sainsbury's on the line with me. He's the Western Lead for Mobility 2030 Initiative at KPMG Canada. Glad he's with me because he's the national leader of their Smart Cities project. Uh, Chris, I'm just going to go to right to the phone lines. You can listen in with us and maybe make a comment. So... Uh, Let's go to Bob.
7: Um, hello. Uh, regarding, I think this uh, autonomous vehicle thing is being a little bit over-marketed. Uh, a couple of reasons. Number one, you're still reliant on zero, zeros and ones. Number two, it's been revealed around the, uh, with the discussion uh, regarding 5G that in order to have true autonomous vehicles, you need a background network. That's going to require an urban setting with a critical density enough to support that, uh, that background network. So once you leave that uh, dense urban setting, you need a driver. Otherwise, you have a car that can hold a lane, and that's about it.
1: Great stuff. Chris, can you just respond? Sure. Um, so, so, like I say, a lot of, you know, the technology
3: is, is getting there much faster than regulation. And I think a lot of things, you know, we're talking about is really around, you know, the ethical side, the insurance side, the policy side, how we're going to regulate this in the future. And a lot, a lot of that, I, I believe, is, is, you know, quite a, a little way off from actually and you, you point to, you know, 5G is absolutely necessary. You know, I think over the next couple of years, we're going to see, you know, the rollout of 5G, probably primarily, like you say, you know, in urban areas. Um, but I think there is an investment and a realization from, you know, the federal government, you know, that we need a connected 5G network, for you know, across Canada. Um, so we will, there are, you know, grants and investment funds, I think, that are going to be in that space to kind of drive that forward. Um but like you say, it, it's not here yet. are a number of things that need to be in place, and a, a lot of these things need to slowly come together. But it will, they will come together, believe me.
1: Let me grab another c- uh, caller quickly. Chris from Langley.
3: Yeah, I uh, somebody in here uh, mentioned here. Uh, like my car got a Tesla Model 3, and it's uh, said to be by the end of 2020. I mean, you know, Elon Musk, he can be a little uh, more ambitious on his, his predictions, but
7: let's say see a couple years from there. I'll be able to add my car to the to the robo-taxi grid, and
3: it'll actually go around making me money. And then I call it back, and it comes back to me whenever I need it. They say a uh, personal car, you use it about 20%, 30% of the time. So 70% of the
7: time, it's actually going to be off making me money. So a $47,000 car. You've got uh, uh, X amount of money coming in on the side. I mean, it's, it's a no-brainer.
1: Well, well it's a, what a great call because, I mean, this is the kind of thing, uh, Chris Sainsbury, that we're sort of sitting and imagining in terms of where are we going to use this stuff and how, what are the implications. And we certainly don't know them, know them all yet, but that's an interesting call there that uh, I think, in fact, we use our personal vehicles. It's even less. It's something like 6 to 10% of the time. And you're right. Mm-hmm. While you're, oh, so it dropped me off at work. Now it can go do something.
3: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think another thing that we haven't mentioned is, you know, the amount of space actually in urban centers spent on parking. So I think I saw a study in the U.S. that, you know, 40 percent of actual, you know, prime real estate land is spent on parking. Whereas with, you know, autonomous vehicles, you, a vehicle could drop you off at work, go leave, park outside of town or take somebody else around. It would free up all this space. I mean, real commercial, you know, high high value commercial real estate, which would add huge amounts to the economy. So side another, another of the
1: story there. Let me just grab one more very quickly, Kit. Go ahead.
6: Yeah, I'm just wondering, you fly a lot, I'm sure, so would you trust an autonomous plane with no pilot?
1: Well, we are during the flight. We certainly are, uh, you know, especially the long haul flights that we do that. But you're obviously worried about the safety feature there. Uh, You know, if you don't trust uh, planes, do you trust cars? And again, Chris, that'll be one of the obstacles, uh, like even psychological and emotional obstacles to the adoption of self-driving cars. But of course, uh, you know, uh, I think all the research tells me that they're going to be far safer than uh, ones with drivers.
3: Yeah, and again, it comes back to this whole customer acceptance. I think there's going to be, you know, a trial period where people want to actually see whether, you know, how this happens, how it rolls out, build up that safety. But I think once there's that kind of assurance in the long run, I think there will be a shift. I mean, everyone, not everyone's going to shift. Some people, you know, they may be reluctant. They might like to drive their own cars, but there is going to be a shift. And I mean, coming back to your point about flying, you know, flying planes. Um, So actually, if you look at what's happening in the Middle East, Dubai is already looking at aerial drone taxis. So not self-driving you know, cars along the road, but actually flying around in drones. So that's, that's a completely another thing. Um, I don't necessarily think that's going to happen in the lower mainland, but it's just showing you how fast technology is changing and the opportunities it could bring.
1: It's a fascinating subject, and I appreciate so much you finding time for us today. Chris Sainsbury is the Western Lead for Mobility 2030 Initiative at KPMG Canada. He's also the national leader for their Smart Cities Project. Chris, thanks for taking the time
3: welcome. Thanks, and, Michael great talking uh, to
1: you. Do you know what the community benefits agreement is? I know you've heard the ads, it's hard to miss. The government's spending lots of money, lots of tax dollars on telling you what a great idea the community benefits agreement is. Talks about hiring more apprentices, women Uh, I'm not sure if they still talk about hiring Indigenous people, because that would certainly uh, beg comments about the lack of hiring of Indigenous people when it comes to the Kinder Morgan pipeline expansion, because, of course, their opposition to it, which is in direct contrast to uh, Project Reconciliation, which are a huge number of uh, First Nations groups in BC, Alberta and Saskatchewan. So I'll leave that to the side. Uh, talking about hiring local union uh, local uh, workforce workers union based and i'm just saying i'm not sure what the alternative to that was i'm pretty surprised if they're building major infrastructure projects, they won't be hiring workers but do you know what it is because it's going to cost you a lot of money cost you a lot of extra money joining me on the line to discuss this I'm pleased to have, uh, you know, first of all, it's a, a big subject, but Chris Gardner, President, Independent Contractors and Business Association, joins me on the line now. Chris, appreciate you taking your time. Give us your take. Uh, what is the Community Benefits Agreement?
7: Well, good afternoon, Michael. Uh, thank you for having me on the show today. And as you pointed out, the this is one of the most offensive policies that has come out of any provincial government uh, in this province for decades and if you think of the construction workforce in british columbia there's 250,000 men and women who caught up and went to a job site today about 15 percent of them are represented by the building trades unions and the other 85 percent are either non-union or represented by other unions what the government has said is that they're going to direct all of the major infrastructure project work to the 15 percent of the workforce that is represented by the building trade. So right off the bat, that's discriminatory. It's unfair. Second, um, the if a company, then the government will say, oh, any company can bid this, uh, can bid the work. Well, that's true. Any company can bid. But if they win, two things happen. If they win the work, first, their employees have to become employees of a crown corporation. So they leave the employment of the company that bid and won the project, and they now join a newly formed crown corporations, so they effectively become government employees. The second thing they have to do is is workers then have to join a building trade union, one of the 19 building trade unions that's covered by the agreement. So the company has lost control of its workers. Uh, Second, those workers will now be dispatched from a union hiring hall. And so the company may not actually get um, their former employees back uh, to the uh, to the work site to work under their uh, under their management and supervision that may actually be people that were seen before that have no idea about the history of culture of the uh, company. Um, so what's the result of all that? Workers are going to lose out, lose opportunities. Costs are going to go up. It's more complex uh, to manage and administer. And fewer companies are going to bid these projects because they don't want to deal with with all of the bureaucracy, the red tape, and and the potential of losing workers uh, to union hiring hosts.
1: Well, I find it amazing that, uh, as you said, you have two hundred and fifty thousand people joining, you know, b- b- going on a construction job today. But the point being that these are tax-paying British Columbians, and we're saying no, you can't bid on this, or you can't really participate, or the uh, or the ramifications of that participation are so extensive that they won't. So, less competition in any area begs higher costs. And uh, you yeah, know
7: and that, that's a, that's a good point because our position is very is very simple and very clear that. The government should have an open and transparent tendering process, and every construction company in this province should have the like, right to bid that work. And if they've got the best bid, the best price, and they have the experience and expertise to do the work, they should be, they should be given the contract and, and do the work. And the, the, other, the other challenge to this the government will say, well, you know, the building, we're going we're gonna to train more people, whether it's women, indigenous, or young people. And, um, and unions train more people, and unions are more concerned about safety, and they sponsor more apprentices. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. And, you know, the government's uh, own agency that tracks apprentices and where they're registered shows that the building trades represent 15% of the workers and they train 15% of the workers. Uh, But in sub -sub trades like welders, 96% of welders in this province are trained and sponsored as apprentices by non-building trades companies. So the narrative doesn't hold together.
1: Well, there's much of it uh, there. I, you know, I, I'll just quote Andrew Weaver, though, of course, because he's a partner in government, coalition government. Uh, he has expressed his concerns about this, and he says, to say it must be union, it strikes a paying back political favors and is very troubling. So let's, that's, that's the coalition partner in the government on this, because one of the aspects of this that uh, people should just be aware of, is it worth it to you to spend, say, $100 million more plus at the Patulla Bridge, for example, and the reconstruction there. Could that money be better spent elsewhere? Because you can build a few school, schools with $100 million. And that's just one project we're talking about. And now there are other examples. But, uh, you know, what I found another astounding aspect was the government is going to pay fees into this union-managed funds uh, to promote skill replacement, health, safety rehabilitation, that kind of stuff. But the governments and meaning the taxpayers are going to cover administration costs of the Allied Council of Unions itself. I mean, there's just a lot of that. And we're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars are going to be paid directly. That's in, you know, on top of the dues. And I, again, what is the public getting for it?
7: Yeah, and that's the thing. It is going to be, there are, the government has admitted that the Patella Bridge will be at least $100 million over budget because of, of the Community Benefit Agreement framework. We know that when they issued... Um, uh, they tendered a contract for paving uh, four kilometres of road from Kamloops toward the Alberta border. And usually you'd have a dozen companies uh, bidding that project. They only had four. And the budget for that project a few years ago was um, $35 million. And the low bid when they tendered it under the Community Benefit Agreement framework was $52 million. Um, so that's just a small example of the cost escalation that you're going to see as a result of reduced competition. And the bureaucracy and the administration that companies are now going to have to price into these bids because they're setting up a new crown corporation, all the workers are going to to become employees of this crown corporation. Uh, It is crazy.
1: Well, and again, the taxpayer has to stand back, Uh, is this one of your priorities for spending an extra hundred million dollars on a bridge project, or as you just alluded to, you know, on a highway uh, construction project, you know, costs going up dramatically in the millions of dollars, and people have to stand back and say, okay, am I getting my money's worth for that extra? You know, I I want to say up front, I've got a lot of other issues that are more important to me uh, as a taxpayer than paying that. Uh, You know, top of mind for me is providing adequate health care for people with intellectual disabilities, which we do not at this point. Now that's just my hobby horse. I get that completely. No one else has to agree with that. But as I say, I look at what I'm going to pay another hundred million plus that didn't need to be spent. Uh, you know, I'll let Andrew Weaver's words again, express, you know, it smacks of political payback. And, uh, You know that makes me. I don't uh, support that. I want to be upfront about that. I wouldn't support it any government anywhere because I think competition is good for the public. If you're looking at the public interest, the more competition you get, uh, the better it's going to be. And obviously, the government disagrees. By the way,
7: well, you're exactly right. And when they when they uh, um, they negotiated this agreement, uh, the the community benefits agreement framework behind closed doors, uh, nobody really knew it was being negotiated. And then the premier went to. uh, you know, went to BCIT and and made the announcement. And uh, that was the first time anyone had really understood the ramifications that would have been negotiated. So the government didn't go to the construction sector and say, listen, how can we deliver projects more efficiently, more effectively for British Columbians? How can we train more women and get more young people to consider a career in the trades? Um, He just sat behind closed doors and negotiated a deal with 19 building trades and shut everyone else out.
1: Uh, As I say, the community benefits agreement, a lot of people aren't up to date on exactly what it is and the ramifications for it. Uh, Chris Gardner's on the line with me, President of the Independent Contractors and Business Associations. And I want to say up front, I don't support when government, and it could be uh, any government, every government that's been in power, has done favors for supporters. My gosh, you should see what the Ontario Liberals did in the green power file. It was astounding. Right now we have the federal government uh, giving money to the Bombardier yet again. What another loan. Isn't that fabulous? It doesn't matter. All of them use advertising dollars from the taxpayer to push their point of view. I'm just saying in this case it's another one for me. $100 million extra for a single project? No, I've got better use for that money. Whether it keeps it in my own pocket, by the way, but if they're going to do something, I've got a lot of other things I'd rather see with that. Let me go to the phone lines right now. John, go ahead
6: yes sir i'd like to say congratulations to you for bringing some common sense and bringing the practicalities down of this government that we have and i wish you a refreshing breath of air next to keith baldry to get bring out the facts about these guys and what they're doing and i really appreciate it as far as i'm concerned this agreement that they have is totally useless I wish that CKNW would put you on the air more often to give us a real good perspective on things. Well, I've always re, always respected the fact of listening to you,
1: sir. Well, okay, thank you for your call, I John. Appreciate it. Thank you for your call. Uh, I think it is straightforward, uh, Chris, Chris Gardner of the Independent Contractors, as we talked about at the outset, is the public better served when there's competition or when you create sort of a semi-monopoly situation? It doesn't matter what area we're talking about. And, and you know, there's no shortage of evidence. It's conclusive that that when we have competitive bidding, just like when you have lots of choices to go to the grocery store, lots of choices. I mean, look at ICBC. I got no choice, basically. And look what's happened there. But, I mean, we've spent years proving that monopolies and, and sort of semi-monopolistic attitudes, lack of competition is not good for the public. And uh, in this case, uh, it's going to cost the public hundreds of millions of dollars over the course of several infrastructure projects. I'm just simply saying I got, I got better uses for my money.
7: Yeah, well, no you're exactly right and there's there's an element of of openness and transparency that is being cast aside by the government that always delivers the best value to taxpayers and there's an element of fairness thats uh, that is that they've also cast aside. You're a you're, you you a, a construction company you work for a construction company that's not affiliated with the building trades you should have the right to bid uh, any publicly tendered project and if you've got the best bid and you've got the expertise and the experience to uh to build the project, and you should you should win the work, uh,
1: but that's not good enough for, uh, for this government. Let's go back to the phone lines. Ross, go ahead.
6: Yeah, uh, as a union employee myself, I do not mind uh, if the government goes and makes those projects union only, because those people turn around and spend the money in mm-hmm. their communities. you know, so you know, I listen to your sh- weekend shows, and the, you know, there's a lot of hypocrisy there as well. All that money, I spend my money uh, back in the community. I go to restaurants. I go to the automotive repair shops. So much so, I spend every single dime in there. So what, what is the difference whether uh, the, the government is uh, paying less for privatized workers or more for unionized workers? That money all comes back here. What I really hate is when, like, BC ferries or they send their ships, uh, their, their uh, contracts overseas, why? We can be building them here, all that money comes back here, especially in taxes, and all those people spend money here.
1: Okay, thanks, Ross. I appreciate your call. But, I mean, let's be clear that any worker is going to spend their money here, their local workers, it doesn't matter if they're in Fort St. John. I think you're, so let's, let's be clear, they would spend the money here. Then your point is that union workers are paid more uh, for their work and that means more but goes back in the community but you have to remember where did that money come it didn't appear out of nowhere and uh, you know I appreciate your point of view but I'm just uh, informing you that the money doesn't come out of nowhere if the government's spending a hundred extra hundred million do you think it disappears if they didn't spend it there they could spend it on a priority that I have for example giving health care at the same level that you and I enjoy to people with intellectual disabilities that would go to a practitioner a health practitioner it's not that the money would disappear no it would just be spent or used by other people so again i'm not and certainly i'm not critical of union workers excellent work i'm saying we're opening up to to everybody on that uh let me just try one more well i'm not sure if i have time let me do one more quick call oh i guess we don't have time for that hey, chris uh, uh, again this isn't about saying uh union non-union workers other than the government saying that we're saying no, that right. open it up to well, and uh, and all, workers, all workers all workers are worthy
7: yeah, the other point the Colin made is about union workers getting paid more. Well, right now, the construction sector in British Columbia for the last four or five years has been as busy as it has ever been. And there's no difference between what workers pay who are unionized or non-unionized because there's a shortage of workers, and, and workers know that. So if they're going to be underpaid, they're going to walk down the street and, and, and get a job at a company that will pay more. Uh, so there's no, uh, there is actually no difference. Now, some of the union rates might be higher, but a lot of the those dollars don't see them their way to the pockets, the bank accounts of the workers, they end up in dues and fees that are paid to, uh, to the union's.
1: Well, it's an interesting subject. I'm glad we have a chance to talk about it, and there are different points of view. But uh, one of the things that I would like people's views on any subject, any issue, to be fully informed, and I don't think they are, on the Community Benefits Agreement. And so uh, I appreciate you taking the time to help uh, illuminate your point of view, Chris, uh, President of Independent Contractors and Business Association. Uh, Thanks for taking the time.
7: Thank you very much. Appreciate it.